So speak to the woman who's listening right now and is contemplating an abortion or who's driving him from an abortion or to the couple who they've maybe had abortions in their past and they're trying to settle that. Speak into that. Okay, I'll begin by saying I am not pointing a finger at you. There's three pointing back at me. For I too killed my first child through abortion. I too carried that guilt for decades. God is the giver of life. Only He can truly forgive us. And that forgiveness He wants to give us. He wants us to confess that sin. And He wants to heal it and take it away. That is what the whole point of the cross was. That is the whole point of Bethlehem. The journey from Bethlehem to Calvary was a straight line. A straight line of ultimate love that would redeem us from ourselves. So don't think that that is, that what you, if you have already had an abortion, that, that God will not forgive you. He wants to forgive us. And he has forgiven me. I know that from personal experience. For the woman who is contemplating it, there are resources in cities all across America and Canada, pregnancy care centers who have options. Seek one out and they will show you another, another way. It is the way of love and abortion is never love. We do not gain our rights on the backs of someone else. What is the very first thing that your, your founding fathers wrote in, in the inalienable rights? The right to life comes first. Why does it come first? Because all other rights depend on it. Without the right to life guaranteed, all other rights become arbitrary and uncertain. And it is the same at the end of life. I do not have a right to end my life. If I choose assisted suicide today, it will affect my wife, my children, my grandchildren, my community, and in a small way, even my nation, for it will help to entrench the notion that there is such a thing as a life that is unworthy to be lived. Are you going to let it harden your heart, become a stone heart? Or do we turn it over to God, the giver and author of life? You're listening to the Reframing Ministries podcast, providing help, hope, healing, and humor for people walking through pain. Here's our host, Colleen Swindoll Thompson. Hi, everyone. This is Colleen Spindle Thompson, Director of Reframing Ministries at Insight for Living. I am absolutely honored to be talking with a gentleman today who has gone through incredible suffering and who will speak with us about the circumstances that we face, whether they are disabling, whether they are difficult, they could be dreadful, disastrous, you name it. Mark has a story that will inspire and encourage you to keep moving forward. So without saying more, Mark, pick up. Thank you for being with me today. And thank you for having me, Colleen. Mark, you have one amazing story. And when we first talked, I just was I just spent time listening. Will you take us back to what started your deeper journey with the Lord? Actually, the journey begins before the disability. Uh, I uh, was a spoiled brat, basically, when I, growing up extremely arrogant. I thought that uh, I could do anything. Um, and when I was diagnosed with MS in 1984, it was a terrible shock. I had uh, been athletic and healthy, always saw myself as a winner. And now this terrible thing came on. What had happened was I woke up one morning and uh, I was essentially dead from the waist down. I could walk fine. I just couldn't feel anything. I couldn't feel sharp from blunt or hot from cold. And uh, I went to see my physician. He thought I had a pinched nerve. And then the next morning, I lost the use of my right arm. Uh, so they, they initially started looking for a brain tumor. Uh, that pulled out uh, nothing. But they did finally find that I had, I had multiple sclerosis. How old were you at the time? Because that's very young. I was 30. Um, which is right in the range. Usually they, they say it, it begins at about 20 to 40. So I was right, right in the middle. Okay. Um, but uh, it was a huge shock. And uh, the, the disease in those early years, it was raucous. It just was a wild roller coaster ride. Um, I would wake up in the morning and uh, 
I might be able to, to walk. Um, I might not be able to walk. My vision would be affected. My hearing would be affected. I'd go spastic. Um, I'd go incontinent and dirty myself. And all of these symptoms would come with no guarantee that they would remit. So it was, it was a toss-up every morning. And it was a terrible, terrible shock, not only for me, but for my family. Well, yeah. How old were your children? What were, I mean... My daughter was seven and I was, and my daughter, son was five at the time. Um, mm. And my son has a memory that uh, I, I caught a cold. And of course, with MS, when you catch a, a low-level infection like that, it magnifies all the other symptoms. What, what this particular cold did was it, it caused the, the muscles in my throat to uh, seize so I, I couldn't breathe. And uh, he remembers me flailing around after a coughing spell and my, my throat wouldn't open up. And uh, this little guy was running around the house frantically looking for his mom, to, to, didn't know what was going on. And that memory stays with him to this day. And happily, you know, the, the spasm did give, give way. Uh, we went to the, my, my wife packed me into the car, we went to the emergency. And I still remember the, the doctor uh, saying to me as well, when you pass out, it'll, it'll uh, let go. And I said, and in between that time, I've got a panic because I can't get my hair. Exactly. He, turn, he, he turned to my wife and he starts showing her how to do an emergency tracheotomy. And uh, we realized that, that uh, we were in, into something that we didn't realize we were into. For those of us who are listening, may, they may not be familiar with MS, but it stands for multiple sclerosis, which is another way of saying many scars, which occur on the spine. But you're talking about how it affects multiple levels of bodily functions because of the neurology of it? Right. Multiple sclerosis doesn't attack the nerves. What it does do is it does attacks the coating, the myelin coating. And, and, and the myelin is, is a fatty coating that is around the nerve that protects the electric, electrical messages coming to and from the brain. What happens was, as those scars that you mentioned, the, they had developed because the myelin swells, for what reason we're not quite sure, and it begins to squeeze the nerve and it makes the message either difficult to get through or impossible to get through. Hmm. And then when the, the remission comes, the, the swelling goes down. But at, over time, the swelling goes, comes and goes, comes and goes. It begins to scar. And that's where the word scler, that's Latin for scar. And the multiple, it means it happens throughout the nerve, uh, central nervous system. Interesting. So there wasn't pain necessarily. There was just an inability to feel anything. Well, there was pain with that initial, that initial diagnosis. There was, uh, it wasn't, it wasn't pain as in stabbing pain. It was a dull kind of, of, uh, of pain. So your wife is there with a three-year-old and a five-year-old. You're suddenly diagnosed. Okay. Five and seven. You're suddenly diagnosed with this life long, like you cannot change or repair it disease. How did you settle that between the two of you, or how did you work through that process? It was very difficult, Colleen. We, we, we would go into a remission, and sometimes the remissions would be near complete. Um, and I would, I would bicycling and swimming and doing all those things that dads and moms do with their kids. And then the attack would hit, and I, I would uh, be, in the wheel, be in a wheelchair or uh, something other symptom would happen. And we'd get disappointed that the remission was gone. Hmm. And so we were going to this attack, and usually there, there was a, a, a few crosswords with each other because we were so disappointed. Mm. And then the remission would come, and we'd tell ourselves, "Don't get excited! Don't get excited! It, it couldn't, it may not last." But we would get excited, Colleen. And then the next attack would come. And uh, when I talk about roller coaster, it was as bad a roller coaster, if not worse, for my family. My wife once said, uh, "It's easier to watch than to be." There's there's great wisdom behind that. Is if I think of my wife in the same position that I am in, well, quite frankly, I can't think of it. My mind simply won't go there. Hmm. And she had to face this year in, year out, no guarantees what would happen. After I was able to put off uh, being medically retired from my Canadian civil service job, excuse me, for seven years, but eventually it got me. And the irony was when I was with the government, I was working with how to give people with disabilities job training so that they could work, be in the workforce. And here I got nailed myself. And eventually, I just couldn't keep up the workload and I had to retire. But I was 38 years old and being put out, at the, put out to pasture at that young age hmm. was very difficult. And I went into a clinical depression because essentially my career was gone and I was so young. 
So that, that created another problem because mom was a stay-at-home mom and uh, she loved being a stay-at-home mom. And suddenly hubby's home and he's there all the time. And that, I was encroaching on her turf. So that created another whole area of problems. Now, there was another thing is that the whole self-image issue comes up hmm. that you have to, and this isn't just for people with disabilities, it's with everybody. But I had to redefine myself from being healthy and able-bodied uh, with an upwardly mobile career to a new human being that was, was now in a wheelchair who did not work. Who is that new human being? And I had to redefine self. I remember a number of years ago, I was, I was conducting a workshop on redefining of self with disability. Mm-hmm. And uh, after the, the seminar was over, this uh, a woman of maybe 55, 60 came up to me and she said, that's not unique to, to you in disability. I've had to redefine myself too. Mm-hmm. You see, she was a mother and she put her whole identity in being a mom. Mm-hmm. And one day her last child left home mm-hmm. and where did that go? So she had to redefine herself too. And I think that that's the same thing with us all. When we, at each stage of life, there is a redefinition. Who, who am I now? Mm-hmm. And how do I fit into the world? So that's really a universal issue. That's not a disability issue. That totally is universal because I know as a mother of a child with disabilities who's now getting older, it could easily become that's my defining point. You know, I'm defined by my son's disabilities or I'm defined by, like you mentioned, being an athlete. How we allow society to define us and it is so easy for that to happen because the messages, especially now, with the internet and, and technology, there are so many messages telling us who we should be. Mm-hmm. And then we have two problems because we first don't know who we are and we're hearing these messages and then we don't know how to figure it all out. So talk me through that process because that's really the reframing process in, at its core is you're not defined by your circumstances, but the no. circumstances affect us and they are used for a purpose. How did you first step into defining yourself? Colleen, that, that, that's a, a really important question because I think that it's dangerous to let our disability define who we are. We are who we are because we are made in the image of God. That is what gives us value. That and nothing else. Because if it was something else that gave us value, then my value would decrease as my health went down. Or if the definition is intelligence, the person with Alzheimer's, their mm-hmm. value goes down. But that isn't what gives us value. We have value because we are made in the image and likeness of God. That and nothing else gives us value. And that and nothing else can take it from us. Did you wrestle with that? Because there's so much passion behind your voice in that. I fully agree. And I know people listening are going, how do I get from, I am? I know in my head I'm made in the image of God. I know in my head that there's a purpose for my life in my heart. I am discouraged, I'm depressed, I feel like I have no purpose. How do you bridge that? That's a very healthy place to be in, actually, is that state of, of hopelessness. I love that answer. As, That's great. As long as we think that somehow we're self-sufficient, that somehow we are in control, it will be nothing but frustrating, and we will find ourselves defeated in that because we never were in control, even without the disability. God is in control. And I think that that state of defeat allows us to surrender. That is a a key word, to surrender our lives completely and totally to God, willing to accept whatever that means. If his will for us is to work with our disability for his glory, then that is where we, we must go. We must blossom where we are planted. Does that make sense? It makes absolute sense. In fact, I think the best part of my faith journey has been when I've been in the greatest amount of doubt because I wrestled with that so deeply and I needed to resolve that. And it wasn't that I could come up with some kind of faith answer. I had to go to God's word and find what he said about me, about my child and his limitations, which don't need to define him because he changes lives all around him, even though he's hard to understand when he speaks. 
So it's not about our circumstances or about our abilities. You're saying it's about Christ living fully alive in you when you are completely surrendered to him. And I will tell you that 36 years of multiple sclerosis, I have had friends come and go, but the only constant has been Christ. You see, this is the one of the great, wonderful, beautiful ironies of our faith, this dichotomy. In life, there's death. In death, there is life. In surrender, we find liberty. That is, those are concepts totally contrary to the, to the world in which we live. But yet, in surrender, there is liberty. We can find liberty as children of the God, even in dire circumstances. When outwardly looking in, there's no liberty at all. Hmm. But within that surrender and within that defeat, we can find salvation. In one of your blog um, articles, you wrote, and this ties in perfectly, you said something needs to heal and something needs to die. Something needs to be rejected and something needs to be embraced. Something needs to start and to begin, to be changed and to be the same. Those are words that are, it's a dichotomy. And isn't that the life that Christ lived? He lived completely contrary and taught so differently than what all expected of him. And that's one of the reasons he was hated so much. When we talk, when I talk about embracing and rejecting, let me talk about uh, something about that grief of adult onset disability. Hmm. The person that we were is gone as surely as if that person died. There is this river of grief that we are in. It fluctuates. There's ebbs and flows in it. And that's good. And that's healthy. As with any grief, it needs to flow. But when it ceases to flow, that can become depression. And depression has, has less of a focus. But that river needs to... There. And when something blocks it, we need to push whatever is blocking it away and keep that river going. It's like we are standing on this side of the river. Our old self is dead. We can choose to stay on this side of that river of grief. Or we can choose to cross over and find who that new self is. And we will see, if we look real hard, we will see there is a second figure there summoning us over. That second figure is the Spirit of Christ. If we stay on this side of the river, refusing to accept our new reality, we will become bitter and angry, and ourselves will dwindle and eventually die. But if we take that perilous journey across that river of grief and stand on the shore of the other side of the river, we can find a new self, different to be sure, but no less vital because we're standing there. And if we surrender at that point our direction and the rest of our lives to Christ, he will show us a purpose in that. And that may be deliverance, or he may want to use that experience for his glory. Are we willing to accept that? Did you go back and forth with that question as you continue to live with MS? Am I willing to accept this? Am I willing to accept this? Sure, there is. There is, there, there, there is you know, we fight with the bitterness thing, and, and that, that's part of the grief journey. Right. I'm thinking of it. <laughs> I sometimes hop in that little tugboat that's the bitter boat and want to just ride that because it at least, at least makes me feel somewhat empowered. But that's of the enemy. <laughs> Unfortunately, that boat's got holes in the bottom. It sure does. To in surrender, really surrender, not partial surrender, but totally surrender everything to God, content to accept whatever that might be. Mm. That's when we begin to release the bitterness. That's when we, we release self-control and realize that we were never in control in the first place. Mm -hmm. That is the beginning of healing. That is the beginning of redefining of self into something new that can blossom where it is planted and allowing it to be watered by the love of God. In something that you just sent me earlier today, Mark, that I love, and I think it gets to the very core of what you're saying, you said, I am convinced that if a society does not embrace the sanctity, dignity, and equality of human life, and any barbarity is possible. Yes. How has that worked itself out in you and through your work that you've done in the last 36 years? The 
value and the dignity and equality of every human life it is the basis for universal human rights for one thing but it is also the basis for our understanding of the enormous unfathomable love of god the same love that would send his son to us knowing full well how he would be treated hmm. and yet he did it for the sake of love and love itself that i think is the point of the journey of life is to find the first inklings of divine love and the journey is toward god's perfect love because we cannot love perfectly here but we know the journey is to perfect love because god is love and christ's example to us here was that love personified and worked out and we can still have that love in ourselves by inviting Christ into our lives and letting him be the center hmm. and that love will become our definition it is what gives us our dignity our dignity was ours from our very beginning from the moment that we were conceived the night that we were conceived god implanted his indelible image on us and that is where human dignity begins that is where human rights begin that is where love begins or it should mark you've done a lot of speaking with congress and with um with those in very high positions in the united states and in canada um and internationally your your drive your passion to speak into those on the sanctity of life goes very very deep can you talk to me about those roots, where they came from, how it has sprouted, and where you're going with that now? Well, it sprouted by being born into a, a devout Christian family. Um, my father taught me from the very beginning that every life has value to God. No life is not valued by God. If we go to hell, it will not be because we were unloved. It was because we chose it. If we grow and place that growth with Christ, then the growth really happens. And it happens on more areas than one. So that's where it began. You're, now keep in mind, I'm a Canadian. Keep in mind that my country pays for every abortion. You can have as many as you want for any reason or no reason whatsoever, and they're all paid for by the taxpayer. Now we have euthanasia in this country. We call it medical assistance in dying. Medical assistance in dying is not assisted suicide. Medical assisted dying is called palliative care. It doesn't kill people. What we have in Canada is assisted killing. Hmm. We pay for all those. Taxpayers pay for all those too. That is what happens when you have lose sight of the sanctity of every human life. And your idea of human rights no, is no longer universal. It's a selective human rights, speaking hmm. on a secular sense. So that is what will happen when we forget that every human being has value and dignity, regardless of how they're behaving that within them still resides the image of God. And that image of God is not ours to take or to give because it was given to us by someone else. So speak to the woman who's listening right now and is contemplating an abortion or who's driving him from an abortion or to the couple who they've maybe had abortions in their past and they're trying to settle that. Speak into that. Okay, I'll begin by saying I... I'm not pointing a finger at you. There's three pointing back at me. For I, too, killed my first child through abortion. I, too, carried that guilt for decades. Mm. God is the giver of life. Only he can truly forgive us. And that forgiveness he wants to give us. He wants us to confess that sin. And he wants to heal it and take it away. That is what the whole point of the cross was. That is the whole point of Bethlehem. Because Bethlehem, had, the journey from Bethlehem to Calvary was a straight line. A straight line of ultimate love that would redeem us from ourselves. So don't think that that is, that what you, if you have already had an abortion, that, that God will not forgive you. He wants to forgive us. And he has forgiven me. I know that from personal experience. For the woman who is contemplating it, there are resources in cities all across America and Canada, pregnancy care centers, who have options for you. Seek one out. 
and they will show you another, another way. It is the way of love. And abortion is never love. We do not gain our rights on the backs of someone else. How long did it take for you personally to work through the guilt of that? It took decades. The abortion my girlfriend had, who incidentally became my wife later on, occurred in 1971 and for decades. And in many ways, I, I consider my life an act of penance now. But the, I, it is not with the grief anymore. Yes, there's a sadness that that happened, but I know it's forgiven. Now, how that plays out in our lives, only you can decide. The individual can decide. Are you going to let that fester? Are you going to let that harden your heart, become a stone heart? Or do we turn it over to God, the giver and author of life? That sin is forgivable. Don't ever let the evil one tell you it's not. You know, your own, your own constitution is based on that principle. What is the very first thing that your, your founding fathers wrote in, in the inalienable rights? The right to life comes first. Why does it come first? Because all other rights depend on it. Without the right to life guaranteed, all other rights become arbitrary and uncertain. And it is the same at the end of life. I do not have a right to end my life. I am not an autonomous being. Decisions that I make affect others, not just me. If I choose assisted suicide today, it'll affect my wife, my children, my grandchildren, my community, and in a small way, even my nation, for it will help to entrench the notion that there is such a thing as a life that is unworthy to be lived. I do not have that right. We are interdependent community. We are not independent selves. That is, we are, are dependent on each other. We are interconnected. That's what the word family, community, neighbor, nation, all attest to the fact that we are interdependent beings, not independent beings. If you want an independent self, you will have a jungle. Hmm. Every man for himself. No, I do not have a right to assisted suicide. What I do have a right to is the best palliative care that's available and the resources to deliver it. Why? Because every life is sacred. It has dignity, regardless of its circumstances. And it is precious in the eyes of God. And it should be precious in the, in the eyes of every believer too, and all people of goodwill. Mark, I need to ask you, because I just was reading um, another one of your writings, and you were talking about how we are, we are, there are so many denominations, there are so many different churches, you know, different beliefs about church and how it should function and community and relationships. And I loved the fact that you said we must get rid of our barriers with each other in order to come together as one voice, which is the voice of love from Christ. How does that happen when there is such staunch beliefs on this way or the only way? See, I think that's where the enemy really does his number on the church. Well, this way or the only way, that, that is really, we find that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. That is, that, that is it. So the real issue is not infant versus adult baptism. The real issue is not uh, transubstantiation. The real issue is not your denomination. The real issue is have you given your life to Jesus Christ? That is the issue. Drop our denominationalisms. And in case you're, we've all noticed that our Western culture is dying. Our Western Christian civilization is dying. Now is not the time for denominationalisms. Let us, let us argue those points of doctrine when again we are now again a Christian society. But right now we need to join arms. And we have the numbers. Catholics and evangelicals, we can stand together. Let us put our doctrinal differences aside and focus on Jesus Christ. He and he alone is our unity. It's really not that difficult. It really isn't. And there are times where I'm incredibly discouraged, even in raising my son, um, who will worship differently, he prays differently, he sings differently, and there are times where he's looked at down upon, not looked at as, that's amazing from an innocent heart. That guy worships 
from his soul. It's, gosh, can't you get on tune? When you talk, when you talk about your son praying, is he praying to Jesus Christ? Absolutely. We're in church. In fact, my other son, my middle son. Does he love Jesus Christ? With his whole heart. Then who are you or I to find fault with his praises? You know, I'll give you an example. I was, I was at a church, uh, well, it was my church actually, um, and the youth pastor came up and he said, you know, Lindsay has Down syndrome, and uh, that's not a real name, but I'll use it. She has Down syndrome and she's with the youth group. And when she starts to pray, she just jabbers away and she'll go on and on and on. And all the other young people are, are, are finding it. The, their LDs are uncomfortable with it. And I said to him, Pastor, has it occurred to you that in her innocence, her prayers may be more profound than any prayers that you and I may pray? Absolutely. The issue is Jesus Christ crucified, Jesus Christ risen, confessed, and we put a place our faith in him. I, I, right now, at this point in time, I don't want to talk about those other issues. I want to talk about a Christians banding together to reclaim what is lost and to forge forward to build and rebuild that Christian society that made us great. Hmm. It wasn't military prowess. It wasn't economic might. It was God who made us great. And I fear greatly for your nation and mine that now that we, we have turned away from him, we will find that great, greatness is gone too. Well, because without that dependence upon Christ, upon God, to move ahead and to live, then what do we have? We have a bunch of very human, selfish, sinful people running around wanting to dictate what's right and wrong, rather than a unified community saying, we are moving in the right direction because it's based on the Word of God. Your own currency says in God we trust. And Is some, that true? It, and Is sometimes that true? I wonder... I wonder how long that will last on the currency at times. That is the issue before us now. We have to return to God. We have to place our nations and ourselves and our institutions and our mores and our customs and our traditions into the hands of God himself. They are not ours to make. They are ours to implement. We are not building an empire we are helping to build a kingdom. Hmm. One of the things that you just posted in February of 2019, Mark, was a title of an article called Love That Overcomes. Right. And in it, you say, I wrote a film script I called Journey Toward Love. It chronicles the odyssey of the love of my wife, Lorray, and I have experienced covering half a century in our journey towards the radical love of God. It is a radical love because it involves faith, surrender, and love of neighbor, even if they spitefully use us. It has involved the glory of life and the darkness of death. It has involved the anguish and chains of physical disability and the transcendence of love above all. Great is a love that overcomes. How have you and Lorray worked at overcoming the challenges? Okay. Um... I'm going to share something with you that uh, I shared earlier with, this morning. When you and I first began to, to talk about this podcast, I was still in my wheelchair. And in one of my, incidentally, the, 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 uh, the blog is called Human Life Matters, humanlifematters.org. And your, your listeners can go to it and re read the, uh, the posts there. I began, last winter, I committed a prayer to God that if it be his will, that I would, might finally, after 15 years, get out of my electric wheelchair. I was at one point right on the edge of quadriplegia. Mm. And then, that's how desperate it got. And, and I, I just prayed, if it is not your will, I will accept that. You know, the model we use is uh, Christ's prayer in Gethsemane. He didn't demand anything. He mm. said, if it is your will. Mm. But he was willing to accept what was in store for him if it was not God's will. That's the spirit in which we must pray. And slowly, I began to notice I could touch my little finger with my thumb. I hadn't been able to do that in years. I hadn't, I hadn't been able to hold a pen in years. I couldn't hold a spoon. People had to cut my meat for me. And slowly but surely, I regained it back. And now I can write, with, with, write again. And then, one morning, 
it wasn't audible. I mean, it wasn't in English, but it was an understanding that I was told to stand up and use the walker of my mother-in-law who had just passed away that was sitting in the corner. And of course I was thinking, I haven't walked in years. What, is it? what do you want me to do, Lord? <laughs> okay. I walked a few tentative and shaky steps. You stood up? I, I stood up and I, and I walked a few steps with this, with this walker and I yelled at Larie, come and take a look at this. I mean, we're talking five steps. I bet you did. <laughs> but there were five, five steps that hadn't, been, uh, that hadn't happened in a very, very long time. And then five steps became 10, and 10 became 20. And now I am walk, walking with, I, I'm not using my wheelchair at all. I am walking with two canes, granted, but I'm walking. And my, my, my use of my right arm is back. And so the Lord has given me that. But because of that monumental pride that I talked about, I wonder if perhaps he will leave me dependent on the canes. And now if that's if that is it, then fine, I'll accept that. Perhaps that is the thorn in my side to keep that pride at bay and, and suppressed the way it should be. But I'm walking again. And you can see that on, on my blog because I did post it. And the very first one on a walker and after that on canes. I did see it. I really um, want everyone to go and look at that. It is amazing. It's amazing. So what, what happened was I, I, when this happened, I, I went to do my physician and I said, I was in my wheelchair and I, I got my son to bring in my his, his grandmother's walker and planted it at the other side of, of the office. And I said, I want you to see this. So I took her out into the hallway and she's going, what, what are we doing? And I got up out of my wheelchair and walked in this and she's standing there with the, her jaw on her chest going, Im possible. <laughs> and I said to her, so how is this happening? And she says, I have no idea how this is happening. Because at 36 years, my brain is riddled with plaque. I shouldn't be able to do this. Mm. Um, the MRI has just showed it's just plaques everywhere. So she sent me off to my neurologist and he, he watched, watched this very tentative walking granted. And he said, so what do you attribute this to? My comment back to him was, well, how would I know? You're the doctor. <laughs> he, You're a little he, smart he, mouth. <laughs> he, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, so he, he just, I don't know. My physician said, whatever you're doing, keep doing it. Well, it's, there's nothing in particular that's different than I'm doing. The only thing I can attribute it to is God because science can't explain it. Now, does that mean it will always last? I don't know. Am I willing to accept it going back into the wheelchair if that's God's will? Sadly, I'll go back. But what I will tell you is, as long as I am on the canes, I will use that as a, a vehicle to praise God. And if I must go back to my wheelchair, I will use that as a vehicle to praise God. And with that, I want to go back to our, one of my earlier points, is that we use the soil in which we are planted to blossom. We use that soil and its circumstances, no matter how foul the soil may be, to praise God in our circumstances. Sometimes because of our circumstances, because, well, sometimes despite them. But God's name is worthy to be praised. Do we only praise God in the good times? Do we only give him the praise when our children are healthy in their beds and where we have employment and secure in our marriages? Or do we also praise God when everything is going wrong? If he is a God worth praising, he's worth praising even then. And I think that's something that, that our culture needs to know. The culture that wants to win at everything where youth is, is the only thing to be, to be worshipped in wealth and power. God came and he used the powerless and the poor to pro proclaim his name and to proclaim his glory. Those are the vehicles that he chose, not the greatness, but the simple. And I think it is in our simpleness that our greatness is found. And there's another dichotomy. Mm -hmm. It is only when we place everything in his hands do we have any hope of doing it right. And there's so much of a desire from in my circumstances as a parent, having had my child through so many therapies and diets and do this and he'll be healed, do that and he'll be healed. And then there's the whole Christian verbiage, which is often, well, what sin is in your life? Or are you not praying enough? Or you don't have enough faith? And I'm like, yeah, you know, <laughs> I've got a vested interest. I'm the one suffering here. So I've got it. <laughs> Thank you. But after seven years of intense therapies and doing everything I was told to do, he got dramatically worse. So what I realized or what the Lord was showing me was, Colleen, your hope has been in things other than me. Right. 
And he had to let me run out of all hope because I was so devastated and angry. Lord, you were supposed to heal him. This was supposed to do it. Wait a minute. I was hoping in therapists and in doctors, and they are valuable. They are needed. Absolutely. They are important in bettering the life of those that we love or in our own lives. However, our hope has to come from a different place, and that's what I'm hearing you say. I'm glad you brought that up because I got the same thing, that the reason I, 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 I have MS is that there's unresolved sin in my life. Well, I went to the Lord, and I confessed my, my unresolved sin, but the MS remained. Well, it was because my faith wasn't strong enough. And if I had strong enough faith, I would jump out of that wheelchair. The faith of the size of a mustard seed would make me dance again. And you were still in the wheelchair. Do you know, do, do you know what we do, do to people when we say those things? We tell them that their disability, their Down syndrome, their Parkinson's, their MS, their spinal cord injury is their fault. Hmm. That's what we do to them. And we, what, what arrogance it is for human beings to appoint the reason for catastrophe or failure or heartbreak that we somehow know God. Now, one of the things I want to really want to address is the recovery that I'm enjoying right now. I would not ever name it and claim it. I do not believe in that. God is not a sugar daddy at my command. I must accept his will. And sometimes his will isn't what I think it should be. Because this journey is the journey toward him, not for my own, self, my own glorification and my own edification and my own enjoyment. This is a journey toward heaven. I need to take that journey seriously. And the cars and the mansions and the money, those are extraneous things that won't mean a thing at the end. You know, that old thing about the, you never saw a millionaire who was at the end of his life said, bring me that bank account. I'd like to see the balance again. Exactly. He always wants to see his children. He wants, he wants to be right with, with, with God. That's what matters. So how do you impart this celebration of others through Christ's love? How do you impart that to those who want to name it and claim it or want to believe it, there's a quick fix? It's the vaccinations. It's that doctor. It's the genetic mutation. How about it's God? If there was a, a quick fix, then how do we explain Calvary? If God could have just done it without without a blood sacrifice, wouldn't he have done it? You see, we're, we're dealing with a perfect God and an imperfect humanity. He's not here to serve us. We are here to serve him. And I think that that is where we discover that God is God and we are his children. We're not spoiled children. We must not be that. We must be obedient children. He does not want happy people. He, he, what he really wants is holy people. And sometimes holiness comes through difficulties. And if, that be, if that's the, what it takes, then, it, then allow that person to take that journey without, without casting dispersions upon them. Hmm. If you can't do it by understanding, at least do it through kindness. Um, I'm not sure that we, we, we should be expecting an easy fix. That, that's sort of a North American mentality. Mm-hmm. Jesus certainly didn't get one. <laughs> Let's start there. <laughs> no, he didn't. And and uh, like I say, is is if easy fixes were God's way, then explain Calvary. Mm. I I think what we've got to understand that very often, if Christ had had pain in his life, that we're probably going to have pain. It may not be physical pain. It may be emotional pain. But it seems that pain can have a purifying effect if we allow it. Um, we were talking about. Families and uh, our, those we loved. You were mentioning your son with yeah. autism. In ni- 2010, uh, my wife and I delivered the keynote address to the National Right to Life Prayer Breakfast in Baltimore. Lurie is not a public speaker. She loathes public speaking. We delivered a joint address. I talked from the perspective of the person with, with, with the illness. And she spoke from the perspective of the loved one. Hmm. And, of course, because I do lots of speaking, it, it was uh, no big deal to me. And I went through and I did my portion. But Larie was so vulnerable. She, her notes were shaking as she was up there. And the people loved her for it. Mm-hmm. She spoke about being angry with me for being disabled in the early years. She spoke about the impatience of me when I would go shopping and I had to sit at every, uh, at every bench 
she spoke about the anger of the house having to be adapted and changed and hoists and bars and all those things put up. She spoke honestly about that. She spoke about the temptation to leave. And I must tell you, with MS, the divorce rate hovers around 80%. But she stayed. And she was brutally honest about all of those fears and concerns. And in the end, simply proclaiming her own defeat and laying it at the, at the foot of the cross. And God let us out. That is part of that journey toward uh, love that I spoke about the script. But that was her story. And you know what, Colleen? You could have heard a pin drop. 800 people in that, that room, and you could have heard a pin drop. When it was over and we got off, off the stage, people surrounded Larry, and uh, there were mothers whose children were disabled. I remember her saying to a woman whose husband had Alzheimer's, she said, I get so angry with him. And when you mentioned that, I could ident identify with it. And Larry prayed with her. They could talk to her because she knew what it was like. She knew those feelings of anger, those feelings of shame, those feelings of guilt and confession, and picking up the pieces and carrying on, knowing that at the other side there is love, the love of God waiting. And it was that vulnerability, that brutal honesty, that humble, gentle faith of a wife and mother who would never claim to be anything other than a wife and mother that everyone identified with. And it was as though I hadn't been on stage at all, because what they really needed to hear was what Marie had to say, that despite it all, love can transcend our circumstances if we place everything in the hands of God. If we place it in our own hands, it will, we will lose it. But with him, we can move on. And she talked so, so eloquently and so, so gently and so lovingly about that transcendence and uh, it, became, it became part of the script, um, that whole journey. Of, of It's a, not an easy journey. It's not a journey that anyone's willing to take, but it's a journey many of us must take. Yeah, can I talk to her next? <laughs> you know, no, I doubt you will, but I'll ask her. What would happen after that was everybody was ask, asking to, uh, if we would come and talk at, at their state conferences. And uh, <laughs> Larry went to Michigan after that and did theirs, and she, then she said, I, I'm done, I don't. It is absolute torture for her to, uh, to speak in public. <laughs> well, Mark, as we come to a close, I one of the things I would really love for you to speak into, because as you just talked about being a caregiver or Louise being a caregiver yes. and sharing those experiences, I mean, I have been at places of such anger and such discouragement. Like, this is what I'm going to do the rest of my life? And yes, we are not, I know that I don't have a right to things. And there is an abrasiveness in my spirit when I fight with the Lord on that. And when I finally resolve it, it's like exhaling and finally coming to peace. So for those who are listening and wrestling with that kind of anger and resentment, can you just give a word of encouragement or hope or direction as they settle into a place of being able to exhale and find peace. It isn't in the great things that we do that we find love. It is in the simple things that we do greatly where love is. It is the day-to-day -day care of those we love, the day-to-day -day care of those we may not even love, that human greatness is found, where the love of God is truly found. When I spoke of surrender, this is part of that surrender. This is that day-to-day -day surrender to God, everything, and then reaching out to his children, his loved ones, those who may, he made in his image, who may be disabled, mm -hmm. who may not even be aware that we're, we're there, but we're aware that they're there. And they call us to a higher standard of love. And if we are willing to reach out and accept that challenge, that calling, there we will be as close to God as we will ever be because we have stepped into sacred ground. It is in the simple love and care of others that we find the love mm -hmm. and care of Christ for us. Thank you so much, Mark, for this time. I really am so thankful that you have continued to press through some of life's most difficult, trying circumstances and are at a place to speak with us about where we can find lasting hope, 
where we can place our trust, where we look for value and our identity, because those are so core to life on this earth, really, between we're passing through, and I know that is such a cliche, but that is true. And it's in the simple daily tasks of life where God's love can become incredibly profound, making our days have meaning beyond what we could have ever come up with ourselves. I believe that, and I believe the answer to life was simple all along, that we find it in Christ. Our identity, our purpose, our dignity is found in Christ and Christ alone. Mark, thank you again. It's been a pleasure and a treat to talk with you, Colleen. Thank you. This is a wonderful time. And thank you for encouraging every person listening, too. Oh, God bless. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for joining in on the conversation with Mark Pickup. You can find the show notes and the resources in our podcast description or on our website. If this episode encouraged you, I would love to hear your story in the rate and review section of the podcast. You can connect with me personally at reframingministries at insight.org, and you can connect with Reframing on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, and other media platforms. Please visit reframingministries.com if you would like to explore more of the resources that we offer and to subscribe to our weekly and monthly content. Thank you again for joining us today at Reframing Ministries. If you enjoyed this podcast, let us know in the comments on our website. Our desire is to provide biblical help, hope, healing, and humor for people walking through unique and challenging segments in life. And in order to provide for more people, we'd love your support through prayer, sharing this content with friends, and partnered support. Reframing Ministries and Insight for Living Ministries operate entirely and only on your generous gifts and donations. You can partner with us and donate to Reframing Ministries through our website. The Reframing Ministries podcast is a production of Insight for Living Ministries.